Church, Sherry and I love being with you. This is a great worshiping church. I love your band. You guys are awesome. And uh, it's a singing church. That's always a delight to be a part of, to be around God's people as they sing. It's, it's incredibly encouraging. We get to go to a lot of churches, and this is a, a great singing and worshiping church. And so uh, thank you for having us back again. One of my friends here in the middle said to me, we just can't stay away. And, and he's right. This is one of our favorite churches. So this morning we're in this great passage in John, and, and it's uh, the Lord's Prayer, and it's, a, it's at the end of his ministry. At, Sherry and I have been in Jacksonville this weekend watching our daughter from Kennesaw State run track, and, and this is a great time of year for sports. Um, basketball is swinging into its final series. Um, same with uh, hockey. Turn me down just a little bit, or is it this one? Hockey's right there, the same place. Baseball's now in full swing, and the hitters are finally catching up with the pit pitchers. Uh, NCAA's and track are going on. It's a sport we love. Every sports fan loves a comeback. You know, in basketball, it's the three-pointer at the buzzer. If you've been watching the playoffs at all, we've seen several of those. In, uh, in football, it's the two-minute drill, winning the game under the pressure, under the wire at the end. In, in baseball, it's the walk-off home run, especially if it's a pinch hitter. It really makes it exciting in the bottom of the ninth inning. And to me, this prayer is like the walk-off home run of the gospel. It really pulls together, Jesus does in this prayer for us, through the scriptures, pulls together the mission that he had been sent on by, by the heavenly father and, and it reveals the full scope of what jesus came to accomplish and over the last year as sherry and i've been with you uh, a number of times this is our fourth time in john 17 May, maybe you've been with us all four of those times uh, this is our fourth week to look at the, pl- the this prayer and you could say we're crossing the plate bottom of the ninth winning the game. And, and the first time we looked at this prayer, we, we reached first base when Jesus prayed that we would be given the eternal life, an eternal relationship with the Father and, and the Son. And then we, the next time we reached second base as Jesus prays in verse 17 and 19 that we would be sanctified, that we would be set apart, consecrated for the Lord's glory. And then the third time we reach third base as Jesus prays in verse 18 that just as the Father sent him, so he is sending us on a mission to reveal his glory to the world, beginning for this church in Carrollton. And, and so today we're going to reach the plate, our fourth and, and final time in this prayer as Jesus prays about how the glory of the Lord is revealed. And it's through unity. And love among God's people. And these four things are the result of the work of Christ on the cross and in the resurrection and in his perfect life. And they go together. They are interdependent. And so I had Ben read the whole prayer for you again this morning, even though we're going to focus on the last verses so that you would remember what it's all about. I have three points for you this morning. If you're a note taker, I think I finally made the bulletin. And... uh, and so, so you, can, you can follow along with us. The fir- my first point of three this morning is that we are designed for community. Designed for community. The good news of the gospel is that God is reconciling the world to himself through the Lord Jesus Christ. 
Jesus has died on a cross and has risen from the dead to give eternal life to sinners like you and me and and when we put our faith alone in Christ alone. It's a life set apart for the glory of God as we live out as ambassadors for Christ to a, a lost and dying world. Not by ourselves, but revealing the glory of God in a community of love. And these four things go together. Eternal life, holiness, mission, and love. And that's what we've seen over the last year. And if you leave part of it out, one of those four out, well then you look like a runner who's stranded on base at the end of the inning who never makes it home to score a run. You don't get eternal life, holiness, and purpose from Christ, mission from Christ, apart from the community of the saints that's called the church. And that's so central to the gospel that when the disciples finally figure out who Jesus is and that he's sent from God, Jesus says, well, I'm going to build my church on the rock of that confession. As one man said, the gospel is not a drive-in movie. It's not the red box where you sit by yourself and watch on your own screen. Salvation is a community experience. And that goes completely against our privatized American culture. So even to enjoy community in the suburbs out here in, 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 in rural West Georgia re- requires a, a cultural shift in our thinking away from our American experience to have a biblical experience. Jesus reveals very clearly by his prayer that we're designed for a shared life and community. Look again at verse 21. He prays that we may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you. That, That is incredible. Verse 23 says something similar. He says, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one so the world may know that you've sent me so as the people of god with eternal life on a mission for god we are modeling the unity of the trinity for the world father son and holy spirit and it's an eternal community so what i want you to see is i I see three ways that the father and jesus are unified together he says in this passage that we'll be unified as they are unified so first The Father and Son are unified in relationship. But back in John 15, Jesus says, I am the vine and and you are the branches. What's incredible about the gospel is that Jesus shares himself. Just like the vine shares itself with the branch, so Jesus shares with himself with us. He, He shares his glory with us. He makes us partakers of the divine nature. He says, as the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. I no longer call you servants because a servant does not know his master's business. Instead, I have called you friends. For everything I have learned from my Father, I have made known to you. And what Jesus is sharing with us in the gospel is an eternal relationship with the Father through the Spirit. It's an eternally unified relationship, always one. They are three persons But one nature, the same in substance, equal in power and glory. And this eternal unity is revealed in their mutual love and care for one another. If you remember when Jesus was transfigured in glory in front of Peter, James, and John, they they couldn't figure out what was going on. It must have been the Feast of Tabernacles, and they're asking if they can build some tents. And 
And right before them is being revealed the glory of the eternal Son. And the glory of God's presence envelops them. And they heard the Father's voice. He says, this is my Son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Listen to him. Then the second way that the Father and Son are unified is by seeking each other's glory. Look at verse 1. He says... Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. Verse 4, he says, I glorified on you, you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. Verse 6, I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Jesus says, what I see the Father doing is what I do. He says, I always do what pleases the Father. So, you see, the Father promotes the Son, the Son promotes the Father, and the Holy Spirit promotes the Father through the crucified and risen Son. You you could easily say they worship each other, that from all eternity, their love is also worship for one another, because they're coexisting as the greatest object greatest person in the universe and so they worship one another as they give glory to one another imagine then that the king of all the universe comes to reveal the grace of god now you would think that he would be strutting his stuff in rome in front of the emperor in dc on k street but instead he's born in a cattle stall in no-name palestine And it's on that basis, that that humility that Jesus says in Matthew 11, he says, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. You see, we were designed for unity in community. But sin enslaves us to a deep loneliness and isolation as, because instead of seeking to promote each other in imitation of the Father and the Son and the Spirit, we, we live to promote our own glory. You know, Satan's temptation to Adam and Eve in the garden was to take charge of their life and to seek their own glory, to, to be their own God. And every human on the planet is born running the same path. As one man said, sin creates a relentless, sleepless, unsmiling concentration on self that completely isolates you from others. And just by way of an advertisement, I get no money for this, but C.S. Lewis's The Great Divorce is going to be, where's that going to be, Cher? Uh, yeah, I think downtown on Peachtree. You can look it up. But this week, this next week, Thursday through Sunday, I think the show is going to be on. And Sherry and I are going next Sunday. The Great Divorce is a book by C.S. Lewis that reveals the loneliness, the desperate loneliness when you're lost without Christ. It's a great book. And, and, and I just want to give that as an advertisement. Lewis isn't going to pay me anything. Well, maybe he'll thank me when I get to heaven and see him there. You know, we're all born seeking our own glory. And you see, it's wearying and, and burdensome to be enslaved to your own glory. So Jesus says, learn from me. Take my humble yoke because it's light. 
and it's restful for your soul. And then the third way that they're unified is in mission and purpose. Look at verse 8. He says, For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. Jesus has been sent by the Father to bring eternal life to those who belong to him in faith, and that is his purpose and his work. And in order to do that, he has to go to the cross and die for sinners and rise from the dead to bring an acceptable righteousness to heaven on our behalf, a righteousness that he has gained first by a perfect life and then by the resurrection. And so in John 5, Jesus says, My Father is always at his work to this day, and I too am working. If you look back in the prophets to Ezekiel 34, you'll find a a passage that denounces the shepherds of Israel. And and it's because the leaders and the elders of Israel at that point are being self-serving. They they lack interest in ministering the people of God. It's it's like a coach who wants you to perform but doesn't really care about you. That's what a self-serving shepherd looks like. And the solution, God says, is he's tried to reform the shepherds and they keep repeating the same sin. So finally he says, I'm going to have to come myself. He says, I'm going to come myself and be the shepherd of Israel. And so Jesus picks up that theme from Ezekiel 34 in John 10 and says that he is the good shepherd and he's been sent by the father. He says, the reason my father loves me is that I lay down my life only to take it back up again. No one takes it from me, but I I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and authority to take it up again. This command I receive from my father. You see, Jesus says that as the Father and the Son are unified, and because uh, Jesus says as they are unified, and because we are united with them as the people of God, therefore we are united into a community together. That is objective reality, whether you feel it yet or not. That we are unified with the Father and the Son. He shares his love with us, and therefore we are a community of love. That's objective reality. So now the gospel calls us to live that subjectively, to live according to the truth of the gospel. So that takes us to the second thing that I wanted to show you this morning, and that's pictures of community. We're we're united together in a parallel fashion as the Father and the Son are united. In fact, what the gospel does is unite us with the Trinity in heaven. That's pretty incredible, isn't it? And so I want to show you three pictures of the church that parallel the unity that we see in the Father and the Son. So the first is that we are brothers and sisters together. In other words, we're in a family relationship together just like the Father and the Son. And immediately say, some of you say, "Uh uh-oh, you don't know my family. You don't want to be in my family. You know, there's nothing worse than being 20 years old at Thanksgiving or Christmas and having to sit at the kids' table. Does that happen to any of you? The college students are gone home, so they would all nod their heads. I have a friend in a wheelchair in Florida whose parents insist year after year to eat Thanksgiving dinner out on the porch because it's Florida and it's, and it's so nice out at Thanksgiving. But the table, you see, is not handicap friendly. So he tells me he either has to eat inside by himself 
or he has to have a lap tray that will fall over at any moment because he's a quadriplegic and he can't hold it. So this year he told me that he stayed in by himself. You know, family stuff is so annoying. I'm, we're going to a family reunion for Father's Day. And <laughs> my father has eight brothers and sisters, and I have 37 first cousins. I'm pretty sure there'll be somebody there that doesn't like me. And maybe I don't like them. It, it's bad, isn't it? I don't know anyone who gets along great with all their siblings or their extended family. And it's no different in the church. Have you noticed we have the hardest time getting along? We're so easily offended. We, we almost play a sport of sticking our toes out in the aisle to see if we can get them stepped on so that then we have something to fuss about. It's the weirdest thing. And the world says, you see, the solution is to hang out with people only with people who agree with you. I don't know who that is, but that's what we're supposed to do. (laughs) Or the world says you should be tolerant. And until you're not tolerant, then they're not tolerant. But but, beloved, we're, we're the family of God. And what sets us apart from the world is that we don't simply practice tolerance, though that may be good. We up the ante and we imitate Jesus by practicing forgiveness. We're the people of reconciliation with a message of reconciliation. Nothing puts the gospel off or the flavor of the, of the church worse than being sinfully fighting among each other while we're talking about the, the reconciliation of Christ. It's just words bouncing off of walls. When you put your faith in Christ, you are forgiven your sins by God and you are adopted into his family and you become Christ's brother or sister and Jesus prays for unity because we're so different from one another and because we're so different, we get on each other's nerves. You know, religious people find churches where they agree with the pastor or the vision or the doctrine or they like the music and then when they cease to agree or cease to get along or they don't like the music choices anymore or because of some disagreement with somebody in the church, they leave. And the gospel, however, calls us to forgiveness and reconciliation. The best thing for your soul in a disagreement in a church is to stay. Work it out. Submit yourself one another in humility. The gospel calls us to that, and the devil laughs when we can't get along because our message of reconciliation is not heard. And the world then ignores the church, you see, because without unity, but without forgiveness, we're irrelevant. We got nothing to say. We're just a club down the street. Here's what Paul says in Colossians 3. He says, therefore... As God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourself with compassion and kindness and humility and gentleness and patience. Have you ever noticed that the fruit of the Spirit is always about taking initiative? We don't wait to be loved. We start and we love. We don't wait to feel joy. We ask the Lord for joy and we express it. We don't wait for others to be patient. We're patient. We don't wait for others to be kind. We're kind. He says, bear with each other and forgive one another if any of you has a grievance against someone. And then he lays it on really heavy. I don't like this part right here. He says, forgive as the Lord 
forgave you. Uh-oh. I think we're supposed to even pray that way, aren't we? Father, forgive me as I forgive others. And over all these virtues, put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. You see, the yoke of Christ is the yoke of humility, the yoke of gentleness, the yoke of patience, bearing with one another in love. Paul says, forgive as the Lord forgave you. And so how has he forgiven you? Well, completely. Amen? Thoroughly. Repeatedly. Hmm. I remember one time I was yelling at one of my kids. I don't know, he was probably nine or ten years old, and I said, you have done this a thousand times. I heard the Holy Spirit. It wasn't an audible voice. The Lord whispered in my head, and he says, Jim, I've told you some stuff a thousand times. (laughs) And then Jesus tells the parable of the unforgiving servant in Matthew 18, and here's his conclusion. Then then the master called the servant in, the one that wouldn't forgive the little debt after he'd been forgiven a huge debt. And he says, you wicked servant, I canceled all that debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? And in anger, his master handed him over to the jailers to be tortured until he should pay back all he owed, which was never going to happen. And this is how my heavenly father, Jesus says, this is how my heavenly father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother or sister from your hearts. Is there anyone right now, beloved, anyone right now in this church or even outside this church whom you are denying forgiveness, who who has wounded you so much that you can't forgive? Who is it? Someone in this church who's annoying you. could be leadership. Could be just somebody who sits near you, serves with you in the nursery. You see, denying forgiveness for someone else is the denial of God's love for you. Did you know that? And you see, and bitterness is a form of practical atheism. Because it means you don't believe God really judges and holds things accountable. You have to do it yourself. By denying forgiveness, you see. Well, the second picture of community is, comes from the Greek word koinonia, which means fellowship. Fellowship at its sur- surface level is about hanging out together for meals or ball games or books or crafts or movies or whatever you enjoy together. But when the Bible uses the word koinonia, it means something more. It means shared sacrifice. Christian love is visible to the world because it's costly love. The world says make friends with people who are similar to you in class and family style and ability because then you'll never feel inferior and you'll never feel the need to make sacrifices. I help you, you help me, I'll get the check this week, you get the check next week. And Jesus said to... Jesus said this in Luke 14, he says, when you give a luncheon or a dinner, don't invite your friends, your brothers... Or your, your sisters, your relatives, or your rich neighbors. If you do, they may invite you back and so you'll be repaid. You know, the challenge when you're in a PCA church is that you're most probably upper middle class and you live in a neighborhood of houses 
95% of those people who live in multifamily housing don't go to church. So I'll assume that 95% of you are homeowners. And that's the way that works. Do you even know anybody that can't invite you back? The early church expressed love through shared possessions. Communism takes the possession. You know, communism is the state stealing, taking possession of the individual for the professed sake of the whole. It never works. Even the Puritans tried it and they nearly starved to death. The, the gospel, however, sets people free from slavery to their possessions and turns stingy people into generous people. And the world stands up and takes notice. You see, how you spend your time and your treasure is not lost on other people. And and how we speak about each other and how we treat each other has a direct correlation with the mission of the gospel. So Jesus says in John 15, my command is this, love each other as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this to lay down one's life for one's friends. You see, the Father and the Son promote each other's glory. The world, however, says, toot your own horn. So who are you going to believe? That's a gospel faith issue. In 1 John, the, the apostle says, For everything in the world, the cravings of sinful man, the lust of his eyes, and the, the boasting of what he has and what he does, Come not from the Father, but from the world. You see, gospel unity, gospel love, true community is the costly sacrifice of putting other people's needs before your own. And you will have to speak the gospel to yourself regularly to do this. It starts in the home. It starts in your family. It spreads out into your community group and then into your church and then at work and and, and all over Carrollton as you choose in each situation to believe the gospel and ask the Spirit, ask the Lord to fill you with the Spirit of love so that you can choose others before you choose yourself. It, so in Philippians 2, Paul says, Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, and there is the key, we're united with Christ. If any comfort... From his love, if any common sharing in the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, rather in humility, value others above yourselves, and looking not to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. The early church set the Roman Empire aflame. With the love of Christ, a costly, sacrificial, generous love. And then the third picture of humanity is that we are the body of Christ. Now, there's a lot of talk in our culture about the value of diversity. You know, that you have these uh, public service ads, how we're a stronger people because of diversity. And that's certainly true to some degree. Take three strands and make, that makes a stronger rope. But for diversity for diversity's sake is actually nonsense. In other words, the world says that diversity is good because all cultures are basically alike and morally equivalent. I don't see how anybody could believe that. It's absurd. That's like saying all products are the same because they're all bought by somebody. Or, or all cars are, because, are the same because they travel the same streets. Or all sports teams are the same because they use the same ball. Well, not Tom Brady. He deflates his. 
If all cultures are morally equivalent, then let's emulate Nazi Germany from the 1930s to the 1940s. You see, moral equivalence doesn't pass the smell test. What the body of Christ practices is love that honors the weakest among us. That's the great reversal of the gospel. Let me read from uh, 1 Corinthians for you. I have to make my iPad work and find that passage. Well, I'll have to go at it the hard way. 1 Corinthians 12. Here's verse 14. This is about the body of Christ. Paul says, for the body, and he's using a, a metaphor here, for the body does not consist of one member, but of many, right? Hands, feet, toes, eyes. Verse 21, the eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. Nor again, the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And on those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow the greater honor. And our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty, which our more presentable parts do not require. But God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. My son Matt had an emergency appendectomy back in March. Sherry's a nurse. We were driving home from Jacksonville and we get a call on a Sunday afternoon. I got this pain. I've had it all week. And mama goes, go to the ER. And so he did. The next day he had his appendix out. You know, nobody really knows what the appendix is for. But know this, if it ruptures, you're in trouble. See, that's the same way the body of Christ is. If one part ruptures, the whole body is in trouble. This church, this part of the body, can only fulfill its mission in good health if it stays unified. Which takes us to the last thing that I wanted to show you this morning, which is the community of sons. You can go back to John 17 and verse 23. Here's what he says. I and them, and you and me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. What an incredible statement. The Father loves us even as he loves Jesus. You see that? We're supposed to love each other so that the world will know that the Father loves us as much as he loves Jesus. That's what's at stake. You know, I remember hearing a sermon on unity once. It was at one of those video churches, so I didn't get to interact with the pastor ever. But at the end of the sermon, the preacher said, the the preacher said, if we're not unified, then the world will know about Jesus. So we must do it because we can do it. And I remember listening to him say that, and I thought, who are you kidding? Are you kidding me? We can do it? I haven't lived in that church yet. Beloved, we can't do it 
That's the whole point, not in our own strength. Goodness, we're far too selfish and self-centered to live like we've talked about for the past 30 minutes, united together like God and Jesus. That is, unless the heaven, heaven opens up, the, God opens up the window of heaven and pours out his love upon us. We need heavenly unity and heavenly love infused in us, imputed to us. And and that's the really radical grace of the Father of the Gospels because the Father loves us like Jesus. You see, in order to love one, in order to love someone else completely, in order to love someone else completely, you must first be completely loved and you have to know that you're loved. Otherwise, you're stuck And what unity in the church reveals is that God the Father loves his children, his adopted sons, all of us, men and women, just as much as he loves Jesus. Because when you are a loved person, then you are empowered to love. Just watch any family where there is grace and love and you'll see children who are generous and loving. A family that is built on law and judgment and criticism produces judgmental and harsh children, especially in the church. And permissive parenting is not love either. That's just trying to please, trying to love yourself by getting your kids to love you. That, that, that just reinforces a, a child's assumption that they're the center of the world. Love begets love forever for others. That, that's, why, that's why Paul says in Ephesians 3 that, that he wants us to know how deep and wide and long and high the love of God is so that we would be set free to love others in the same way. That's what the gospel life is all about. And you see unity in a church is a check. It's an evaluation marker that reveals whether or not we're living fully in the love of Christ. If we're living as adopted sons, you see, then we'll be unified. If we're not unified, then we're living like orphans. Lonely, isolated, embittered, discouraged, and giving the same thing away to others. So how are you doing? Here at KCPC, that would be the question. How are you doing? If, if we do the unity evaluation, are we grading out as sons or orphans? How are you doing as a church? Which is really a question about each of us as individuals. Are you living for community, for others, or for yourself? You know, in my, I'm so bad at this that I found I have to put it on my prayer list. One of, the, one of the rows on my daily prayer list identifies seven different aspects of the love of God. Um, you know, by, day, thir- by Thursday, I'm praying for neighbors and that kind of thing. I start with God's love. And I I have to pray every day to ask the Father to reveal his love to me in some fashion or I I won't do it. You know, some of you are still stuck at home plate and you're still wondering if you want Christ to be Lord of your life. Some of you are stuck at first base. You want eternal life, but you don't really want to live a life that's set apart for the glory of God. Is that you? Some of you are stuck at second base. You've You feel consecrated, set apart. You're going to Augusta, but you're annoyed at others for not being set apart for the same thing as you. (laughs) Have you forgotten about the world and that you're only set apart for the things that are important to you? 
Or are you stuck at third base? You're committed to mission, but not to unity. Jesus says, behold, I make all things new. That's the good news of the gospel. The good news is that Jesus died on a cross for our sins, even the sin of disunity, and he rose from the dead to give us new life, new love, and real righteousness in heaven. Jesus has completely loved others. He has completely loved us in our place so that we're able to love and be unified. That's what he's done. And if you will turn from yourself, that's called repentance. If you will turn from yourself and and put your trust in Christ alone, then he will unstuck you. And he will give you his love and he will reveal the depths of his love so that you can live for God and love for other believers and for the world. I think it's time for me to be done, but I have three quick applications. First, if you're at odds with anyone in this church, whether it's personal or the vision of the church, whether it's your fault or someone else's, then I would ask you to work on that relationship this week. Begin with prayer and ask the Lord to show you your fault in the relationship. And admit your fault without expecting the return. Paul says, as far as it depends on you, be at peace with everyone. So even if you've initiated reconciliation before, do it again. And ask yourself, are you easily offended and you're looking for offense? I know some of you are. You're just thinking it's somebody else. You see, love overlooks. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love seeks not its own. Secondly, I would ask you as an application of this sermon to show humility towards the session, your young pastor, your new assistant, Ben, and the rest of the crew. They're going to do things you don't like. So what? I mean, really? At the end of days, does it matter which order the service is in, really? Or where the chairs are set? Or whether you build a huge building or plant church, that matters. You should plant churches and not build a big building. (laughs) But really, we argue about the most petty things and we evaluate the session and their leadership. Oh, he hadn't called me in three months. You know, give each other a break. Pray for your elders, please, and for your young pastor. Ask the Lord of glory to reveal himself and... To, to give them the love of Christ deeply so that they'll love you and then express your love to them. Don't wait. Thirdly, the vision of this church I know is formed around community groups. You know, small groups are designed for vital, expanding, loving community. So I talked to, talked to Andrew this week about my applications and he says, well, community groups falls pretty flat as an application at the end of May. So you just hold on to this one till August, okay? I, I may or may not be back before then. I'll be in India in July. So if you're not in a community group, you need to join one in the fall. It's the simplest way inside the life of the body to express active, initiating love for one another. Beloved, ask the Lord of the church, the Lord Jesus, to make us a loving community. Ask him to do it first in you, and and you know he will do it. That's one of the prayers that he loves to answer.
And that, my friends, is the glorious grace of the gospel. Let's stand for prayer. Our Father, we love you because you have first loved us. We're amazed at how bad we are at this gospel life and how forgiving and patient you are. And so we pray that you'd improve our serve by making us patient and loving as well. That you'd fill us with your spirit and that we might be overflowing vessels, fountains of grace, intersections of love that flow over into one another. Would you uh, cause us to pick up our cross daily and follow after you the cross that we're where self-service dies and the gospel reigns. Would you do that, Lord? Make this a unified church. Give us incredible love for one another and for this community, bold love that would reveal the fact that the Father loves us as much as he loves Jesus. And as you do that, Lord, we won't even self-promote then. We'll give you the glory for it. And all God's people said, amen.